God's word. Revelation 3, verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and he who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit to continue now in our worship. Lord, we've prayed, we've sang, we've fellowshiped. Lord, we want to continue to worship now by giving our full heart and attention to the truth of your Spirit-inspired and authoritative word to speak to our hearts this day individually and collectively as your church what it is that you want us to hear. So Lord, prepare us and we ask that by your Holy Spirit's ministry, you would teach us and speak to us this day once again. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, in order to arrive at the right answer at times in our lives, it's really important that we ask the right questions. I think sometimes every Christian may ask the question in their mind or think through, am I living a successful Christian life? And I would challenge that perhaps maybe that's a wrong question. Maybe what we should be asking is, am I living a fruitful Christian life? Because the Bible speaks of the fruit of the Spirit that's produced in our life when we're abiding in a relationship with Jesus and staying connected to him. We really don't see much indication in the scripture of what it means to live a successful Christian life, but we do see living a faithful Christian life, a fruitful, spiritually fruitful Christian life. Perhaps sometimes we even make the mistake as the Lord's people of asking, am I a part of a successful church? Perhaps there is no such thing really as a successful church, but we do see in the word of God that which would be a fruitful church and a faithful church. And as we look at the passage in front of us this morning, the church of Philadelphia appears to get Jesus' approval as the model of a healthy church. And perhaps that's the better question, whether our spiritual life individually, am I living a healthy spiritual life? As a church collectively, are we a healthy church in the eyes of Jesus? And it seems this church of Philadelphia that Jesus now addresses next does seem to get, if we could put it in those terms, the approval of our Lord for kind of being the model of a healthy church. It's one of, the, uh, one of two uh, out of the seven churches that Jesus addresses that he does not really address anything among them that he's displeased with. We don't see him correcting anything with this church. And from this letter of Jesus, as a model of a healthy church, I believe certainly we should pay attention because we draw lessons that we should aspire towards how to live a healthy Christian life, and we should draw lessons that we aspire towards of what it means to truly be a healthy church and how to walk that out. Again, remember, these seven churches, literal congregations, but they give a, again, seven being the number of completion. In some ways, it seems they give a complete representation of different conditions and statuses that churches can be in from time to time. And as we look at them, certainly each one of these letters 
Again, every one of them, Jesus says, as we see there in verse 13, he who has an ear, individuals have ears, churches don't have ears, so individuals should be listening, let him, singular, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. That is, to the church individually, but to all churches, we should have an ear to hear what the Spirit's saying through these letters. So look with me again back in verse 7 as Jesus opens this next letter. He says, this letter to the angel, again, to the angelos, to the messenger of the church, the called out assembly in Philadelphia, write, he says, these things. Now, the city of Philadelphia, we know at that time, was the youngest of the seven cities in which Jesus writes these seven different letters to of the churches in these different localities in Asia Minor. And the city of Philadelphia, interestingly enough, was purposely established to operate as an outpost for spreading Greek culture, Greek language, and the Hellenist way of living among the Asian provinces. The city itself was located on one of the greatest highways, having it run directly through it, which led from Europe to all of the east. And so because of that, the city itself really became known as sort of a gateway location to open the doorway, if you would, from one continent to another continent. And so very fitting now as this church is here, and again, Jesus addresses this church, the church of Philadelphia, and in some ways draws from some of the things that were the city itself was known for. The word Philadelphia, of course, you may know, means brotherly love. So the city of Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. Now, uh, from some of you who may have been to the area of Philadelphia, some of you may even be originally from Philadelphia, it might be better the city of brotherly shove, our Philadelphia here in the Northeast. But it means the city of brotherly love. And the city was named this particularly because they believed that the power of love would be able to open doors to greater things for those who are part of the city of Philadelphia. Well, it's here. The Church of Philadelphia is planted and assembled in that city where they're worshiping, where they're doing ministry. And interesting, this church having a great love not for the world, not a great love for Hellenist culture and Greek you know, ideas, but having a love for Jesus, Jesus gives this church an open door for greater influence. They established the city hoping that through their love and their missionary efforts of spreading Greek culture, they could open doors to greater things. Jesus says, because that church there loves me and they love my heart, what matters to me, I'm going to give them an open door to be able to have greater influence and greater opportunity. So Jesus writes to this church, beginning in verse 7 there, these things says, he who is holy... He who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So as has been Jesus' pattern, we've seen it. This is the sixth of seven churches we've looked at. This is his pattern when he addresses each church. He identifies some aspect of part of his nature or his character and his attributes, and he draws attention to certain attributes about himself that he deems fitting that would be helpful to that particular congregation, that they needed to ponder about him or know about him. And he indicates three things about himself in verse 7 here to the church of Philadelphia. The first thing he says, look at it there in verse 7, he says to them that I am he who is holy. And the idea there, the term Jesus used, means completely set apart or separate from all other things that exist. The idea there of Jesus being holy speaks of him being wholesome, pure, perfectly righteous, without flaw, without any defilement. The idea is that he is the one who has never sinned and forever remains the holy and the righteous one. And so in some ways, he's reminding this group of believers that we find in the Lord Jesus the one who is absolutely perfect who is not flawed in any way. He's the embodiment of all that's right. He's completely pure. He has no defiled motives. 
He never has any ill intention or a corrupt desire in relationship towards us. You know, I just said this past Wednesday evening, we're going through the Song of Solomon right now on Wednesday nights and the, the love story between them of how wonderful it is to come to know Jesus first as your beloved and to come into relationship with him because then you find the perfect lifelong partner. And you're able to accept much more easily an imperfect human spouse when you come to know Jesus as your first love. Because when you know Jesus and you love Jesus, you found the perfect one. And so therefore, it's much more easy to have a healthy relationship because you don't expect unrealistically perfection and have unrealistic expectations of a spouse because you don't need them to be perfect. You found the one who's perfect. You've got the perfect relationship. And it brings a wonderful harmony to marriage when we can fall in love with the perfect one and know him as the holy one who is above all others. Jesus also secondly says of himself there in verse uh, 7 that he is also the one who is true. And the word true that Jesus uses there is spoken in the sense of being that which is genuine, the one who is real or the one who is authentic in comparison to one who is disingenuous or could be fake or not authentic. So it's describing there really the character of Jesus being reliable, that he is the trustworthy one, the absolute genuine one to, to be able to rely upon. And in a world that is corrupted by the lies of the devil that are being spread among humanity constantly, as well as false ideas sown by demonic spirits, even among the ranks of the church. And that will continue as we progress towards the coming of the Lord. Because the Bible says that one of the characteristics of the last days, there will be doctrines of demons and demonic spirits propagating ideas, even among the ranks of Christendom and causing people to believe that they're on a right track following this idea of what spiritual or that idea of, of what church or Christianity is to be about. And Jesus tells us that he is the true one, and the Bible tells us that that's good to know and to pay attention to the truth that comes from Jesus and all of who he is, because there are going to be deceptive spirits and even doctrines introduced among churches that are demonically inspired, where Satan himself is influencing, again, false spiritual leaders, fake self-proclaimed spiritual leaders who are very persuasive, charismatic. They could carry their audience, because that's what they see people as. And they can convince their customers, because that's what they view people as, to do all kinds of things, but all that really is, sadly, in some ways, is the misleading of the Lord's people and how wonderful we find in Jesus, the chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls, the head of the church, we find in Jesus him who is absolutely true and reliable and genuine. In other words, I think Jesus was reminding this church, who he's very pleased with, you have got one thing right, and that is you realize that the whole reason to do church is me. It's not your great face behind the podium and the most charismatic person that you can find to whimsically you know, entertain you on the stage. It's not your smoke and your light machines and your rock and roll band. It's me. And, and, and you found what's true and reliable. You found the true and most holy and pure reason to exist as a church. And that's for the head of the church. It's for Jesus. And that when they would come together, this church was healthy because the centrality of Jesus was what their church was all about to them. They knew that's the reason for church. It's to meet Jesus, to minister to Jesus, to be ministered to by Jesus and to glorify him. Thirdly, Jesus says of himself in verse 7 there that he says, He is the one who has, verse 7, the keys of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now here we have Jesus quoting from a passage from Isaiah chapter 22, which was the record of a time when God transferred the stewardship responsibility of the treasures of the house of David from one man over to another man. A man named Shebna was not being faithful in his responsibilities over the house of the treasures of David in a stewardship role, and therefore God decided to remove him from his position because he was not being a faithful steward with the things of the Lord. 
And God then determined to give his position and his stewardship by replacing him with a more faithful man named his servant Eliakim, who was given the keys of the treasury of the house of David. That's what Jesus is quoting there, the keys being given to Shebna to be able to open the door of the treasury. So in other words, Eliakim's authority was being announced there in Isaiah chapter 22 as the one now being authorized to grant access or deny access as he decided to the treasuries of David. Well, Jesus now takes that Bible passage and he now notice he ascribes that verse and the fullness of all of that truth to himself as the ultimate fulfillment of that as the embodiment, as the ruler of all, being the ultimate fulfillment of David's line as the Messiah himself, the Savior, the greatest son of David, Jesus now speaks this verse in relation to himself as the one who holds the key of David ultimately and opens when no one shuts and shuts in a way where no one opens. So in other words, Jesus is describing himself here as the one who holds even greater keys. He holds the keys to heaven. He holds the keys to the kingdom of God, all the treasures of the kingdom of God. And we might fairly say, a good way to think of this is that the spiritual key to everything that is true spiritually, to all the treasures of the kingdom of God, to all eternal and spiritual realities, the true key is Jesus. That's the key. If a person wants access to eternal life, Jesus is the key. If a person wants access to the wonderful experiences of all the word of God describes, the treasures of the kingdom and spiritual life and the riches and the wonderful things that spiritual life offers to us, the key is through Jesus. All of that comes through Jesus. Now, the person possessing the keys basically is the one with authority. Someone who has a set of keys, it's an indication that they have authority and they can authorize access, right, by holding the keys, or they can deny access, and that's the idea here. Jesus, as the Lord of heaven, supreme ruler of all, describes himself holding the keys. He's describing himself as here the one who has supreme authority, the one who has ultimate control to authorize all things and he can open any door with his heavenly authorization. And if Jesus opens a door with heavenly authorization, he says, no one's going to shut it. No one or nothing will shut it. And in the same way, Jesus has the authorization and the authority to shut and close a door. And if Jesus closes a door, then he tells us here, nobody's going to open that door up. It's a closed door because Jesus has that authorization. And look, it's important in order to be both a healthy Christian and to be a healthy church that we fully understand and rely upon this spiritual truth that Jesus has ultimate authority and that he has authorization to open what he wants to open and to close what he wants to close and to be a healthy Christian or be a healthy church, we do wisely to yield to that authority of Jesus and to recognize that Jesus can and Jesus will at times open doors and when he opens doors we should be confident and we should walk through those doors in faith trusting that Jesus has authorized that opportunity and that opening in the same way we should trust and believe and yield that Jesus can close doors and that if Jesus closes a door and he shuts a door in some way regarding something that the wisest thing we can do is that if Jesus is shutting it down to yield to it and to humbly turn around and walk away and not try and kick the door open and strive to get it open if Jesus is the one who's closing it. Verse 8, Jesus goes on to say to this church, I know your work. So he wanted them to be aware that he saw all their ministry work, their labor that they were doing to help people spiritually, the ways that they were serving, to help people meet the Lord in salvation, the ways that they were working and doing ministry to help people to grow spiritually and to mature in their relationship with the Lord to be more healthy. And Jesus was very pleased with the ministry work among this church. He saw them ministering well. 
because they were producing, listen, they were producing healthy Christians. They were producing healthy sheep, not well-entertained goats. They were producing healthy sheep by the ministry work that they were doing. And Jesus deeply, it seems, appreciated the spiritual work that they were doing and wanted them to be aware that he saw the work that they were doing. He saw the way they were laboring and doing ministry in different ways collectively as a congregation, each person using their gifts and abilities. And look, folks, even if our spiritual work that we do is never known by anyone else, even if the ministry that you perform or the way that you serve or the ministry work that you're doing is never recognized by people, let's remember Jesus is aware. Jesus sees the work that you do. Jesus sees the, the effort that you're making to help someone spiritually, and he evaluates it. And truthfully, that's whose awareness and approval matters most anyway. Our greatest desire in any work that we do spiritually should just be Jesus is aware of what I'm doing, and as long as Jesus approves what I'm doing, then one day that is sufficient. Again, Jesus says this to encourage Revelation 22, 12. We'll say at the end of the book, behold, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. In other words, Jesus says, listen, I see your work. You remain faithful in that work that you're doing for me. And I assure you one day, you will be rewarded, and it will be worth it, and you will be grateful that you served in the way that you did because one day Jesus will reward every work. The Bible tells us, Jesus says, even somebody who does something seemingly as insignificant as giving a cup of cold water in his name, Jesus said that person won't lose their reward. So whatever we do, we may, oh, this is so significant or this is so insignificant. All that matters is faithfulness that we do what the Lord's told us to do, and we do it faithfully. And Jesus wanted them to be encouraged. I know your works, he says. Verse 8, he goes on to say, See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and not denied my name. So he informs this hardworking, healthy church. He says, I see what you're doing, the work you're doing. And he says, and, and I, I've set before you now an open door. Door. Now, an open door, scripturally, is a reference to an opportunity to have spiritual influence for gospel work. We know this because that term is used numerous times in the scriptures. Acts 14, we find that term open door. We find it in 2 Corinthians 2, Colossians 4, 1 Corinthians 16. And each time it's used, it's used in that context. It's used in the context as an opportunity to have spiritual influence, whether sharing the gospel, whether doing spiritual ministry, whether having some degree of influence for the kingdom of God, it speaks of an opportunity of spiritual influence. And Jesus, by his authority, had worked in a manner to provide an open door to this church, to this group of believers, and he says to them, I set before you an open door, and he says, and no one can shut down that opportunity. In other words, Jesus was encouraging their hearts. I've given you this opportunity, and despite what any human does or any demon attempts, no one is going to shut down this opportunity that I'm setting in front of you to have the spiritual influence that I want you to have. Again, when you think of the term opportunity, it's defined in this way because it's what Jesus is describing. An opportunity is defined as this, a set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something. A set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something. Jesus is saying, listen, I have created this opportunity by working in a way to create a set of circumstances that is making it possible for you to be able to do something that I want you to do. And so I've created the circumstances so that this opportunity is available to you, and I'm presenting the circumstances, and what does he want them to do? He now wants them to walk through the door. He's opened the door like a gentleman, right? The groom has opened the door for his bride, but he's opened the door wanting his bride to walk through the door. And he says, look, I've created this opportunity. And he assures them it's a guaranteed opportunity that no one can hinder it. 
He says, no one can shut this door. No one can close down this opportunity. And look, for you and I this morning, by way of application, whenever the Lord sets before us an open door, folks, or puts an opportunity in front of us, the wonderful thing is when the Lord opens a door, we can rest in faith. And if you know that the Lord has opened that door, you don't have to strive to keep the door open. You don't have to stick a wedge in it to make sure nobody shuts it or keep your foot in it. You can rest in faith. Jesus has opened the door. If Jesus has opened the door, the door's going to stay open. Nobody's going to shut it. And you can rest, and we can be at peace and know, hey, we don't have to force or strive. Jesus is opening this door, and it's going to stay open because it's an opportunity that he's created for his purposes for my life. And secondly, Jesus, I think, also exhorts them toward awareness that they would step into it in faith and obedient action. You notice there, I have it you know, noted in my Bible, verse 8, he says there, verse 8, see, I have set before you an open door. You notice that? It's almost as if he's saying, do you see this? See, take notice, he's saying, I want you, he wanted the church, he wanted these Christians to make sure they saw what he had orchestrated. Why? Because he didn't want them to miss it. He didn't want them to walk past the open door. And he's saying, please, perhaps he's concerned they might be overlooking or had overlooked what he had orchestrated by setting this open door in front of them. And he's saying, do you see it? Please don't miss it, Jesus is saying. I set this opportunity in front of you, and in error, they could have been negligent to miss the opportunity and not act in faith and go forward through the door. And look, let's be very honest. Sometimes through being dull-hearted, sometimes maybe through being distracted, sometimes even through doubting, we can fail to see an open door from the Lord in front of us. Sometimes by being dull-hearted spiritually or distracted in the world or even just being doubtful and fearful, we can fail to walk through an open door, an opportunity that is being set in front of us, and it's an opportunity from the Lord, and we can waste the opportunity. And listen, the whole thing that's true of an opportunity is an opportunity doesn't last forever. And the world is strewn with people who have regret over missed opportunities. When Jesus has given you an opportunity, don't want to miss those kind. <laughs> when it's an opportunity from the Lord, recognize it for what it is from him and believe and act and walk through the door and trust Jesus to take care of what's on the other side. Jesus then praises them for things he's pleased with, perhaps even maybe why he granted this church this open door. He says to them in verse 8, First of all, for you have a little strength. Now, that's not meant to be an insult. He's not calling them weak spiritually. What he's really doing here is he's praising them for their reliance upon him. He's giving an honest assessment here of this healthy church who he's giving an open door to. The honest assessment being this, from an outward status, it seems this congregation wasn't per se large or significant with a strong reputation, prominent in society. Maybe they weren't significant among the ranks of Christendom. They were kind of a church that, in some ways, they weren't the famous church with the strong presence and success story that everybody was talking about. They weren't a congregation that everybody perhaps was focused upon. They were probably more of the type of congregation maybe that was more overlooked as being somewhat insignificant, nothing special, perhaps having a a church where maybe there were not significant resources at their disposal. There was a small amount of resources, or maybe it seemed that they were only accomplishing a very little thing for the Lord. And maybe it seemed like their impact was very minimal, and they were kind of under the radar publicly, and yet Jesus saw them as a faithful church. They might not have been a famous church, but Jesus saw them as a faithful church and Jesus, who's the head of the church, was pleased with the health among them. See, because of their smaller stature and little strength, they, in faith, operated in strong reliance upon Jesus. And when Jesus says you have a little strength, he's basically saying, look, I know you don't have a lot of resources or fame or, or things at your disposal, but because of that, I see how much you rely upon me. And you operate in the power of the Spirit. And you operate in full dependence upon me. And Jesus appreciated 
and admired how they were operating, trusting him to work by his power and relying upon his provision and looking to him to do things because they couldn't just work it up in the momentum of their organizational structure. And Jesus was pleased by this. Look, the word of God, is it not, is filled with stories of great triumphs that God brings for very weak and insignificant people. And it seems that Jesus appreciated about this church. We think of Gideon, who with just 300 men defeated 32,000 Midianite soldiers. We think of David, this young boy who is the one who is able when no one else can through dependence upon the Lord and faith in what the power of God can do, who's able to bring down the giant enemy Goliath. We think of in the New Testament how with just 120 spirit-filled disciples of Christ, Jesus turned the world upside down. And they didn't have half of all the stuff that we have at our disposal now on the horizontal, and they turned the world upside down. How? Not by might or by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. We see them in the upper room praying and interceding. We see them speaking the word of God. We see them doing the simple, fundamental things that mattered to what early Christianity truly was. And Jesus sees this church humbly embracing their own weakness and because of their experiencing great strength. And, and I think Jesus appreciated this church with little strength. He appreciated that they weren't trying to make something big out of themselves. They were content to just be known as having very little and little strength, but believing, Lord, you can do a whole lot with our very little. And so, Lord, all we have, here it is. And whatever you want to do with that, Lord, do what you want for your glory and for your purpose. They were content to just be small in the eyes of the world, but let Jesus get all the glory, and Jesus was powerfully working through them. He says as well, this church, another thing he appreciated, he says, is you've kept, verse 8, my word. So this church, notice, a healthy church, had strong adherence to the word of God. And Jesus appreciated that. They faithfully taught the scripture. It was central in their church life. They kept close to the word of God. They operated their church by the truths and standards of the word of God. The people who were a part of this healthy church were living out their lives in accordance with obeying scripture. And this was another thing that pleased Jesus about this particular church. What pleased Jesus is Jesus says, I like this and you are a healthy church. And why? Because they were the byproduct of a church that had a healthy commitment to the word of God. And can I just say those two will always go together? Those two will always go together that a healthy church will be the byproduct of a church with a healthy commitment to the word of God. Because it's the word of God that makes us healthy Christians. And as it makes us healthy Christians, that contributes to us being a healthy church. And this church had a strong adherence to the word. Also, Jesus says as well, thirdly, that you've not denied my name. So the name of Jesus refers to his character. And this was a church that took very serious honoring the person of Jesus. It mattered to them very much. The church took very serious honoring the person of the Lord and how they operated. They did not want to do things as a congregation that would dishonor the Lord or deny the Lord or ignore the Lord or poorly represent the Lord. They took very serious our whole purpose of existence as a church is to honor Jesus and to make sure that he is honored and that he is glorified and they took this into consideration. And look, can I say again, a healthy church must have a strong conviction to honor the Lord Jesus in all that it does. That's essential to a healthy church. A healthy church must be devoted to the Lord as the chief shepherd, the king, the ruler, the head of the church, because then they will remain committed to an awareness at all times. Does this please Jesus? Because if it doesn't, we should not be doing that. Jesus is aware. Jesus is among us. If we behave in this way or we act in that manner or we conduct ourselves, or we do this, if that's going to dishonor the Lord, we shouldn't be doing that because the whole purpose is to represent the Lord and to honor his presence and to realize that Jesus, as we've already studied, he's among his church. So the guest of honor is not, did I like the church service? Did you like the church service? The real question is, did Jesus like the church service? 
Because the whole purpose of what we do is supposed to be gathering for him and glorifying him. And a church that's healthy is a church that realizes, look, his presence must be honored in our worship gatherings. and His presence should be honored in how we do what we do and how we function as a local church. That should always be the determining factor. Again, you take notice that Jesus' measure of a healthy church already, much different than the models of church success that seem to exist in the world of Christendom today. I mean, where is all the stuff? Where is it all? When you look at Jesus' representation of a model church, a healthy church, I see these things. They recognize Jesus' ultimate authority, and Jesus is directing what's happening among the flock. It's a church that's living in reliance upon the Lord depending upon him in little human strength, trusting the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus to do the work among them. It's a church with a strong commitment to the word of God and a church that reverently seeks to worship and minister and operate in a way where their number one goal is just honoring Jesus. And Jesus says, that's a healthy church. And the church of Philadelphia, who he says nothing negative about, represents this in a beautiful model. Well, Jesus goes on to speak to this healthy church some promises. Verse 9, he says, Indeed, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So notice, Jesus says, I will work in your defense and I will deal with those who are opposing you there at the church of Philadelphia. He identifies a particular assembly of Jews. He's not addressing all Jews, but a particular assembly, a synagogue of Jews who, notice, seem to be somewhat antagonistic towards this church. He describes them here as those who claim to be Jews in identity and title, but he says they lie. In other words, they're not. In other words, they're not a true representation of what a Jew really was intended to be spiritually. Again, we know from the Old Testament, a Jew was not just a national title. The Jews in the nation of Israel were to be a people who loved and honored God, a people who lived set apart after the Spirit of God, set apart for him, walking with God, honoring God's word, living by the Spirit, yet this particular local Jewish assembly, this synagogue, was being deceived, sadly, Literally, Jesus says, by Satan himself. I mean, you can't get much stronger when Jesus, who's God and knows all things, says of your particular gathering, he says, that particular group is a synagogue of Satan. Ouch. I'm sure they didn't have that sign hung on their front lawn. But that's what Jesus calls them. They were a religious assembly. Yes, they gathered religiously, but they were being directed by Satan himself. Satan was influencing this religious gathering, and as a result, it seems they opposed this Christian church, and they were likely doing things to make it difficult for that church in Philadelphia to function, causing them troubles. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to intervene by my authority, and I am going to deal with those who are your enemies opposing you. He says in verse 9 there, he says, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. No doubt Jesus is probably describing how he would powerfully reveal himself to their enemies, probably even save their enemies, and then bring them together with them to worship Jesus, opening their eyes to see that these are indeed my followers and that they were wrong to be persecuting them and opposing them. Look, whenever, folks, we are doing, like the Church of Philadelphia, what honors Jesus, I can tell you this. When you and I do what honors Jesus, a few things will transpire, just like with the Church of Philadelphia here. There will be opposition that comes against us in spiritual warfare. In 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul describes a great and effective door being opened, he says in attachment to that, and there are now many adversaries. And when we do what Jesus wants us to do, or you walk through an open door the Lord wants you to walk through, plan on the other side for opposition and spiritual warfare. It's a part of the package. But here's the thing you can know as well, that you can stand in faith and spiritual warfare because just like for this church, Jesus will intervene by his authority and come to your defense however it's needed. 
He'll defeat the enemies on the other side of the doorway or the other side of the wall. Think of Paul the Apostle. He was a hater and a persecutor as Saul of Tarsus of the church. And what did Jesus do? The same thing he describes he was going to do to this group here in verse 9. He humbled Paul. He, he, he broke him. He revealed himself to him. And then he became someone who joined and became a champion leading the church in many different ways. Verse 10, Jesus goes on to say, and because you've kept my command to persevere, in other words, because you've been faithful and you've endured loyally, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus assures these faithful believers who have, as he says here, loyally persevered through temptations they haven't compromised. They've remained dedicated to him. And he says, in light of that, I want you to be assured and encouraged. I'm going to deliver you from the coming hardships that are going to come upon this world when sinful humanity is judged. Look what Jesus says again there in verse 10. He says, I will now, as a reward to them, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now notice here. Verse 10 there, Jesus is not referring to a localized time of hardship that would come in one locality. I believe the Lord, if you look at his language here, is speaking of something much greater. He refers to there in verse 10, first of all, an hour of trial. An hour is a set period of time. So he's referring to a set period of time, and notice he says, a period of time that shall come, future a set period of time that shall come upon the world in the future, the extent of this punishment, Jesus says, verse 10, it shall come upon the whole world, not just the city of Philadelphia, something that's coming upon the whole world to test through trial those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase there, dwell upon the earth, throughout the book of Revelation is utilized always to refer to the unsaved to those who are left behind remaining on the earth, dwelling on the earth, once the church is removed from the earth and brought to heaven and the period of tribulation and God's wrath and judgment is being poured out upon, and that term is used again and again, the, the wrath of God being poured about upon those who still dwell upon the earth. So as Jesus is saying these things, he's no doubt, I believe, referring here already to the tribulation period we'll see described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, which is that seven-year period of judgment that the Lord shall bring upon the whole world at a period of time to punish the Christ-rejecting world, a time of severe judgment and cataclysmic disasters where there will be suffering among mankind that has never been known or experienced before. As the very wrath of the righteous Lamb of God, Jesus himself, is being poured out justly upon this world against all those who have refused Christ and rejected his salvation and now are being subjected to the just punishment for their sins and their rejection of Jesus Christ, a time when Satan's influence will be worse than ever, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and there will be horrific suffering upon those who are dwelling here left behind on the earth after Christ comes. But yet look what Jesus is promising to his church, the true believers, in verse 10. He says to them right there regarding this coming tribulation period, he says, I will keep you from that hour of trial. Notice, please, look at the language. Jesus does not say, I will keep you through that coming time of judgment upon the whole world. He doesn't say, I'll keep you through it. He says, I will keep you, my church, from it. I'll deliver you from it. I'll rescue you out of it. I'll make sure that you are preserved from it. Jesus is promising to remove his church before the judgment comes. I believe this is another clear statement in the word of God, assuring, again, a pre-tribulation rapture, which means that the church, true believers, are removed from this earth, rescued by Jesus, and taken into heaven before the wrath of God is poured out in the time of the tribulation period upon all those who are still dwelling on the earth who have been left behind because of their rejection 
of Christ. As believers, we know and trust Jesus already embraced God's wrath for us. He embraced the wrath of God on the cross. I don't believe the Bible teaches that we're going to have to suffer the wrath of God a second time. That would mean Jesus did something insufficient. If we have to be punished with God's wrath, because that's what the tribulation is, the wrath of God against the sin of Christ rejecting humanity, if we have to suffer through the wrath of God, then that means what Jesus did wasn't suffering the wrath of God. He suffered my wrath, and Jesus is my city of refuge now. He's my escape. He's the one that's going to deliver us and set us free. He's my Passover lamb. 1 Thessalonians 5 says to believers that God did not point us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here Jesus assures them of being rescued from this coming time of suffering and punishment on the earth. Verse 11, he says, and behold, I am coming quickly. The idea is it will be instant, sudden. It will happen in a way there's no time to make a change or an adjust. It will happen suddenly when he comes and he says, hold fast what you have so that no one takes your crown. Jesus says to this healthy, faithful church enduring hardships on the earth, listen, I'm going to rescue you out of there. But until I come, you hang on to your faithful pattern of Christianity. You remain a healthy church. You do what matters to me and remain a healthy church and healthy Christians. And he says, don't let anyone rob you of your coming reward. You hold fast. In other words, he's saying to this church here, really, finish well. You've played a great three quarters. Finish well. Because I don't want anyone, he says, Notice, not to lose your salvation, he says, but to lose the fullness of your reward. He wants us to get full reward, to be able to receive it. He says, let anyone take your crown. That word crown speaks of an eternal reward. Paul in 2 Timothy 4 says this, I fought the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith. And finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Again, he's referring to the victor's crown, that when someone ran their race and they ran well and they finished, as they would come across the Stephanos, the victor's crown, they would receive as a reward for their faithfulness and for being an overcomer. And Jesus says, in light of my coming, he says, you hold on, hold the line, finish well, I love what 2 John says. It says it this way, look to yourselves that we do not lose the things that we've worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. That's what the Lord wants. He says, I want to fully reward you so you run faithful to the end, that you get the fullness of all of my reward. And then verse 12 is another letter. Jesus concludes with giving some eternal promises to encourage the believer. He says, he who overcomes, and we know 1 John 5, as we've been talking about, that same phrase speaks of the overcomer through faith in Christ, the believer. These are eternal promises at the end of these letters. He who overcomes, the overcoming believer, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from my God and I'll write on him my new name. So Jesus concludes with some eternal promises that speak of security and identity. Referring to security, he says this, I will make the overcoming believer as he enters into glory, he says, a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar always speaks to something stable, something foundational, something permanent. Jesus says as believers who overcome the fallen world, that we're going to have a sense of a permanent place forever in the temple of God, in the eternal realm, being in the presence of the Lord. And he, I love how he says there, and he won't have to go out anymore. Now, I read that, and right away, my mind goes to this. I, I especially think of, you know, because I can say this, let me say this doesn't sound pastorally motivated when I was on the other side of the podium, how I used, and I still do, I don't want to say I don't, I used to love to go to church, and I hated when it was over. I was like, oh, man, I got to leave God's house and go back out there again. Right? I mean, because it's like, and, and look, how wonderful. Jesus says, one day we're going to get out of the world, and you're going to enter into the house of God, 
And he's going to say, you don't ever have to go back to the world again. This is permanent. You never have to go back to the world again. How awesome that's going to be. And regarding our identity, he says, and I'm going to, three times he says, write my name, the name of the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and the name, the new name upon us. There he speaks of writing a name. When you write the name upon someone or a name upon anything, that's the idea of identifying ownership, right? You write your name on something. And so what he's reminding us here is there will be this mark of that we belong to God that we belong in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, which we'll read about in chapters 21 and 22, this glorious eternal dwelling place, just like my wife took my name and it indicates we're unified and she belongs to me. My children got my name. It indicates that they belong to me. Somehow in eternity, we're going to bear some representation of the ownership of God upon us, and it's going to be extremely clear that we are a full citizen of heaven, of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and that we belong there. In other words, take it this way, folks, you're never going to be asked to leave. You don't have to be worried about being deported from heaven. In that eternal city, you will always feel like you belong. And heaven will be your permanent home, and there will be a sense, and I think this is going to be so helpful, because we struggle on this earth at times because we don't feel at home. And we maybe don't feel secure. Heaven is the answer to that. You're going to finally experience in heaven, ah, oh, my dream home. I don't ever want to move again. Don't ever want to see a U-Haul. Don't ever want to think about packing. Don't ever want to think about renovating a new house. I'm home. Ah. Oh. Imagine that wonderful sense of belonging, to finally feel that you enjoy where you are to the fullest extent, and to be able to indulge in that. You know, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit's trying to say to the church. You know, perhaps in the midst of this letter, it's a reminder from the Spirit that we can try and create a perfect, comfortable life here on earth. And if as a Christian, you want to spend your time doing that, you can try and create a perfect, comfortable life here on earth, or you can remember that truly you are called to prepare to go live in heaven. And therefore, to live in a way as a Christian where you focus foremost by living by faith and learning how to rely upon the Lord for things and putting your greatest commitment upon adherence to the Word of God and putting your highest priority upon having a strong conviction to always honor Jesus and looking every day in all of your life as you journey on this earth for doors that the Lord is opening, spiritual doors, not earthly doors. Oh, I got this really great opportunity, really great opportunity. I got a great opportunity to get this really new job. And then two weeks later, I hate this new job. <laughs> look, look for spiritual opportunities. And in faith, Stop getting entangled in the world and walk through open doors spiritually. That's what life's about. That's healthy Christianity. Let's stand. Let's pray together.